who we are at our core are these children who have been distracted or empowered or hurt in the world that have been on these journeys that lead us to where we are today. Hello, welcome to the Active Ingredient Podcast. I'm your host, Sophie Wheel, and this is your destination for all things growth. Hello, welcome back to the show. I decided that I wanted to start doing something new here in the intro before getting into the episode, which is something I'm calling letting go to let in, where every week I'll be sharing something personal that I will be letting go of, something big or small, whatever it is that's kind of top of mind for me that week. But really it's with this intention of sharing what it is that I am currently letting go of in order to create space for what I want to bring in. So this week, I'm working on letting go of trying to figure everything out on my own. And I am letting in help from people who know more than me. And this is one that has been a long time coming. And I, I, I'm just realizing that I am my biggest hurdle in this. And it's the biggest hurdle to my next phase in my business. And I am just realizing that me convincing myself that I can figure it all out on my own is just doing a disservice. So if I could just let go of that ego side of me that is trying to convince myself that I can do it by myself, then I can actually let in and enlist the help of experts who know what they're doing, have done what I am looking to do, even if they're not doing it exactly how I intend to do it. They are a few steps ahead of me or many steps ahead of me. And I am ready to let in their expertise into my life and kind of just step into this new phase. But in order to do that, that does mean that I need to let go of me trying to control everything myself or figure it all out alone. So that is my intention for this week. I'm really excited to talk to some people that I've scheduled meetings with that I feel really excited to help with this kind of phase of bringing on someone that knows more than me. And yeah, I am really curious as I'm talking about these things of like letting go to let in, if there's anything that comes up for you that you're like, yeah, I mean, for this week, this is something that is really top of mind and I'm looking to let in this this way. I would love to hear from you guys. If you want to DM me, my DMs are always open and I'll be doing this at the top of every episode. So this week's episode is one I am so excited about because I personally have been wanting to get way better at handling my relationship to my phone, social media, and technology as a whole. I feel like we're all feeling it. It is definitely something that so many of the people in my life are talking about. And the guest of the show this week is the incredible Larissa May, who is the founder of Half the Story, which is just this incredible nonprofit organization that is fully dedicated to empowering the next generation's relationship with social media through advocacy, through education, and through policy. In this episode, we get into how Larissa found this calling of advocating for the next generation and their relationship to social media, social media addiction as a whole, and tech addiction, and how it's affecting our brains, tips and tricks on how to establish boundaries with our phone. She literally gave me a tip on air as we were doing the podcast. She was like, give me your phone. I'm going to do this right now. It was really awesome. 
and ultimately how we can proactively self-validate in order to not use social media as a crutch for validation because at the core of this whole thing is that they are preying on our need to be seen. And if we can outsmart that by creating the connection within ourselves, then we are a step ahead of this whole tech life that we're in. So with that, Larissa, thank you so much for being on the show and let's get into it. You give me the sense as a person who has a really strong gut, like a really strong intuition. I do have a good intuition. I think that it took me a while to learn that sometimes listening to your brain over your heart is actually the wrong thing. Always. And so, right? Ultimately. Yeah, ultimately, yeah, because it's not connected to who you are. And mm-hmm. I think it takes experiences and people and things in your life. And it just is really, honestly, the true feeling of what it means in your body, like to be in a presence of someone or something or doing something. And like, I think we oftentimes neglect our bodies as like the things that not only tell us when we're hungry or tired, but also the things that can tell us whether something is suiting us, like just from the way that our <laughs> our nervous responses in a specific situation. So yeah, I feel lucky. Also, my fiance, he's probably, he's much better at it than I am, really? which is crazy. Like he is so good at reading people's intentions and I don't know. Is this practiced or? No, it's just like, I think he's just a really good human. And I've learned as someone that he's a bit, a little older than me. I'm 28. I've been with him for like five years. And so I think growing up, it's really easy to fall into situations that don't serve you for some other reason or thing that you're holding on to at the end. And Mm -hmm. it's really important to find people that you align with. And I think for me, more than anything, that's what I care the most about because the rest is just background noise. Noise. I do find that it's like, we're all good at the core. Yeah. But I do find that it's, that's why I asked if if it's practiced for him, because the more that you do it in micro moments, you build that trust muscle so that when the big one comes, you feel confident enough to go with your body's indication or whatever it is that's coming up. You actually feel like, oh, I can actually listen to that because I have 10, 15 other case points that can tell me that every time I've listened to the micro moments where my body's telling me something, it's worked in my favor. Absolutely. And I think that building that foundation is one of the most important things that I've worked on or learned only because as you grow, whether it's a business, as a human, as a personality, the stakes get higher of what you say yes and what you say no to. And as soon as you say yes to something that isn't resonating with who you are, you could really be compromising not only yourself, but your business and, you know, the things that you've put out. And each of us as individuals, every touch point we have, whether it's with the barista or someone yeah. on the subway, like that's an extension in a of who we are as individuals. And it's not think, like compartmentalized. It's all one. No, thing. like we are human beings to your point. And I think that's the part that we all have to get back to. And I think that's sort of, for me, why I wound up just fully giving into this mission and fighting for it for such a long time because I just, of all the things that I did, I never felt the same level of connection to the work that I'm doing now. And I think as an entrepreneur, you know better than anyone, it's like you cannot ignore your inner entrepreneur 
in your life or you will actually be physically ill and unhappy. One <laughs> thousand percent. Yeah. You can't ignore anything really. Your no. entrepreneurial spirit, anything no. that's like calling from within, it's not calling out of a random place. It's no. really coming from a true place. So to ignore anything is disease. Like yeah. that is literally what it is. Yeah. And that active ingredient or intrinsic desire is mm-hmm. something that we really all need to harness and recognize within because once you figure out what ignites you, regardless of what's on the other side, whether it's pain or loss or even lack of money, right? If you're willing to show up and do something every day, regardless of the pain that you might be feeling to get to that place, to do it for your full life, (laughs) then you found some magic. And I think people spend their whole life searching for what their truth is and what their purpose is. And it's not something that you should start searching for when you have had a job and retire. I think it's something that we should really be searching for every day. And as long as we can take those micro moments or micro interactions and experiences and turn them into macro movements or macro businesses, then our world can and will be a better place. I love it. And I want to get into your whole journey of how you've chosen it. You found your ingredient and you activate it every day. But before I do that, I really want to know what little Lars was like. It's the first question I ask typically, even though we kind of just went into it. But I do find that our childlike essence is the answer. So I'm very curious what you were like. I have chills right now because actually, as I was sitting down and I was just going to tell you earlier, the way that I see everyone when I meet them is like I I imagine what their inner child was like and what their younger self was. Because I think that is who we are at our core are these children who have been distracted or empowered or hurt in the world that have been on these journeys that lead us to where we are today. And for me, one of the greatest learnings through my experience and work at Half the Story is that I am closer to the child I was today than I've ever been in my life. I get to work with kids every single day. And I realize that in my life, I was battling these two sides. I'm a Gemini, but I'm also an artist and I'm a businesswoman. And I always say I was born an artist and built a businesswoman. And as a child, believe it or not, I've been going through all these archives because of the film project that we're working on. And I knew exactly who I was when I was eight years old. I was a child actor. I never fit in the box. I had a really hard time with building friend groups because I just didn't fit into the traditional mold of the girls that were in my school or boys. I asked a boy out in eighth grade. It was very progressive. <laughs> he, he did not align and say yes, but that was, you know, that was his own career. journey. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, as a kid, I was in theater. I did improv, their youth Second City uh, troupe in Chicago. I asked my mom for headshots for my birthday one year and really wanted to go into the entertainment world. And so that's where the story began. But I also had a wild entrepreneurial spirit. And I, at a young age, like to connect dots and identify problems that had big solutions. And I remember as a kid, I had a family friend who was a young girl who wound up dying to cancer. And at that age, I just wanted to help solve it, you know, and I would go to the doctor and present my ideas and how cancer could be solved. And I would, I started making these headbands that I then sold at a local boutique to give back to that organization. And I kept building. I tried creating Camp Watermelon. I had my first business card when I was 10 and I was a mother's helper. And my value proposition was that I would bring a new craft every time because I was too young to actually be an actual babysitter. 
And so I think at a young age, I realized that I loved creating, I loved building, but more importantly, I loved solving problems in a really unique and creative way. And unfortunately, when I was in eighth grade, also student body president, so I was very politically active from <laughs> my early days, I had to make a choice. And I was actually between going to a performing arts high school and going down the more traditional academic path. And as soon as I got into high school, I was always very intellectual as a kid, was honestly just like a nerd, but also creative. So, you know, I'm also the biggest nerd on the planet, which is what I'm attracted to the most. Yeah, many people don't, (laughs) you know, realize like the truth is, is that I'm a complete nerd. And in high school, I wound up taking basically every challenging class I could because I was placing into all these different, like, I guess, more challenging courses. And I had a moment where I had to choose between school and my life in the arts because it was virtually impossible for me to be staying up till 2 a.m. doing homework, then memorizing lines, missing school for auditions. And I basically gave it all away. And at that time, my parents were so confused because their entire life was taking me to auditions and driving me to shows that I was in. And they had invested a lot of time in that side of me as an artist. And I neglected it. And I went down the academic path. I did what I thought I should do because I didn't do you remember think, what was going on that like, how'd you choose that? Part of it was mental health. And this was in eighth grade. When, when I was a sophomore in high school is when all everything kind of started going down. And I had, I was piling things on. I was piling work and school and all of these things and trying to do student council. And I always was someone that pushed myself the furthest I could so that I could get to the next place in my life, which at the time I realized everything I had was really within, or now I look at it in retrospect and realize everything I had was within me and that you can be a businesswoman and you can be an artist and you can be an activist, but you have to pave your own path. And so I wound up taking that that path and then went into college and at a young age in the beginning of the fashion industry, started building a fashion blog because I realized that it would be more effective to make money off of a fashion blog than it would be to get a job at school. So I was an early adopter of reward style and started, I had a blog and I was traveling to fashion week and kind of just like shifted my, my energy and efforts completely and really started to get connected in the fashion space. Although that was amazing, I was a young person who really didn't know who I was on the inside and was using social media for external validation, which at a certain point, came to a halt and I was in my dorm room, depressed, posting on social media. My Instagram feed was basically a mixture of suicide content and fashion content. And I almost wound up taking my own life. And in that moment... How old were you? I was at this time like 20 years old, 1920. At that moment, when I went to the psychological care center on campus... I realized that they asked me about drugs, sex, and alcohol, but they didn't ask me about the drug that was in my pocket. And it was my phone and the place that I was spending 12 to 14 hours a day seeking affirmation, false connection, feeling bad about the way that my body looked. And I was completely addicted and obsessed to the, in the digital world, so much so that I lost who I was in the real world. And that was when the light bulb moment hit for me in that I was putting out this world in life and chasing this unattainable view of what it meant to be a fashion icon in the industry. And it actually destroyed me. That's what I always wonder. I'm like, what is the enough point for that validation? And I find this thread, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, for people who 
are natural born performers, people who are in that space that like there is some element to it that I think innately there is like you want to dance with the other people that are in the room. Like you want like that kind of collaborative nature if you're performing and there's an audience like there is some external validation there. So that could be innate and that could be part of being authentically whole in yourself. But then there's a line where it gets lost. And that's where it goes down on this deep end track. And I I mean, I still don't know what the answer is to that. Well, I think, and this is kind of where the name came from, right? Is that social media is only half the story. And when you look at anyone's life, whether it be a young TikToker or a celebrity the world in the story that we're telling the world is a story that we're creating because of the way that we want others to perceive us. And that's the truth. Mm -hmm. And every day we have the right to put our best foot forward and to share a story that will empower us and others. But where it gets complicated is when the story starts to dictate you and your life and you lose who you truly are in that story. And I've seen it with kids that are 10, 12, 14, I've seen it with celebrities that have all of the money and followers in the world. And it's something that no social media platform or external validation can fulfill. It's something that you have to harness within and that truth and that connection. And I think what's terrifying about now for young people in entertainment is that everyone has a stage from the moment they get their phone, whether or not you're famous. And what we see is that kids are more committed to the stories that they're creating than the emotions that they're experiencing. And that disconnect has a profound impact on humanity. And we're seeing it with the mental health crisis, with cancel culture, with the inability of people to put down their walls and their stories and to really truly connect and solve problems. And that's really what keeps me up at night, but also what keeps me going, because I believe that There are also very powerful ways that we can use stories to connect one another and to change the world. It's just a matter of which way we come at it. And this is where I think at this moment in time, humans have a really hard time with nuance. And it's easier to put things in boxes of black and white, fully throw out your phone or fully be knee deep into social media. And it's really hard. And it's really hard for me too, to like live in gray. Yeah. And I'm curious how you navigate that and how you've seen experts talk about it in the space on what does that look like? I also feel like it must be like specific to the type of person, but for the listener who's like, okay, this is resonating and I want to live in the gray where I can be eye contact with someone in person and enjoy life and also share and amplify and like just have my life also live online because it's part of culture. What are we seeing is working? So at Half the Story, we have a full-time head of research and insights. And one of the things that we're studying with youth through our interventions is this idea of digital flourishing. And digital flourishing is the ability to build a positive and active relationship with technology in a way that supports your social, emotional, and physical health. And right now in our society, the story that's being told is that social media is either a yes or a no. It's an on or an off. And I see it within parents. I see it within kids. I see it within headlines. And that's because we live in a story of fear. That's what the social dilemma shared with us. We only know the negative sides. But also, if you look at the research, we actually just had our head of insights. She went through every single white paper that's been done since 2008 on digital well-being. And what people have primarily been looking at with not very diverse populations of people, mind you, is just studying this idea of digital addiction, 
digital isolation, digital loneliness, problematic social media use. We can't just live in as a society in the business of sickness, which is making people a little less addicted, making people a little less sick. What we need to be doing is thinking about how do we get people to thrive and to flourish, which is what our focus is. And so the way that we think in my whole body (laughs) (laughs) and the way that we think about digital well-being and the framework that we've designed, and I can share this with you as a tool for people to think about this visually, is that digital well-being is a spectrum and it is a journey. And on one end, we have digital unwellness and passive consumption, which is when you get on your device for no reason and you wind up in a rabbit hole. When kids that are 10 and 12 years old are experiencing an emotion, whether it's sad, bored, angry, or otherwise, and pick up their device and are looking for a way to cope, but don't know what to do on that platform. That's when you experience passive tech consumption, oftentimes leaves you feeling less than, it makes you feel lost, and oftentimes waste time. And then on the other side of the spectrum is digital well-being. It's an ongoing spectrum. It's a journey. It's something that you have to commit to every day. And at half the story, we look at digital well-being as an active form of technology consumption, which is the idea that not all screen time is created equal and that there are positive and active ways that to use technology to support your emotional health. But we have to identify as individuals which things support us and which things hurt us, just like when having food, some food for some people is inflammatory. Some people are allergic. Some foods are triggering. Technology is the same way. So what we try to do is encourage kids through prevention and interventions to make mindful modifications in their everyday life and technology use so that over time, these small hinges or modifications can move big doors and help support them on that journey towards digital well-being. What are some of those modifications? Let me go out and then in for a minute. So the way that we define digital well-being is the intersection between emotional health and digital habits. I fundamentally do not believe that you can adjust your digital habits without understanding the role that they play in their emotional health or even being able to connect to your own emotions. And so typically when working with young kids, there's a couple of different, and for anyone, there's a couple of different ways that you can even think about getting on the journey towards digital well-being. So the first and most important thing for you to do is to actually not just monitor how much time you're spending on your screen, but to actually monitor how much time you're spending actively versus passively. So what that means is, do you have an intention or not? And to identify in your life the moments and triggers that are causing you to pick up your phone that are creating that space of addiction or loneliness or less than. So for me, I would say that you know, if I'm feeling unsure or anxious, it's really easy to pick up my phone than it is to face my own emotions. So first is just understanding patterns in your life that create those feelings and put you on that wheel. The second thing is, is then saying, well, how do I stop these patterns? So if going on social media mindlessly is one of the things that you do, tech was born to hack you, so let's hack it. Uh, there are a couple of really simple things you can do, which is actually log out of your social media platforms every single time you're on them on your phone. So you really have to think twice about logging into them to be on them, to have a reason. Are you there to connect, to consume, to create, to brag? (laughs) What's the point to really get you to think about that? Um, The second thing you can do is actually make it really hard to access the social media platforms by putting them in little squares far back on your iPhone. Okay, so I did that one, but then the new iPhone has like, if you swipe down, it's like right there. So I'm like, I literally have it in 
the far, far, far yeah. box and now it doesn't matter. Now you swipe down. Well, I don't even swipe down. So that's that's like a, a good thing to know. But I want to know if there's like an option to remove the swipe down. So that's a good question. And I don't actually know the answer. So I'll have to look into it. And I hope that they have it. <laughs> yes. Another thing that's really simple that you can do is like replace the moments in your life that you use your phone to do something other than being a phone. So phones are, and we have this exercise with kids, like make a list of all the things that what things you would call a phone that are a phone. So flashlight, okay, get a flashlight. Alarm clock, biggest one. Do not wake up with your phone. Do not go to sleep with your phone. Get an old school alarm clock. These small changes make a huge difference. Not sleeping with your phone in your room, plugging your phone in into the bathroom or into a cabinet, someplace that's completely out of sight and out of mind. There's also a great thing called the light phone, which is basically a dumb phone that you can use on weekends that will just let you call people and call an Uber, but it has no I honestly, access. I think that I'm I'm on that wavelength right now. Yeah. Because I feel like all of these other things, and not to cut you off, like, I feel like I really am, I have boundaries. I don't yep. look at my phone in the morning and night. Yep. It's not in my room. I, w- I wake up with my alarm. I won't yep. only follow people that I'm like very, like, I know that it's nourishing yep. content, but sometimes I can go down a far deep hole yep. into ner- quote unquote nourishing content. Like I'm mindful of it, but I still feel extremely addicted to yeah. the pattern of it. Yeah. Even if it's like with all of the right things, with yeah. the screen time, I literally have like all all of these barriers yeah. for myself, yet still. Yeah. And that awareness is the first step. And I think that's why light phones are great because you can just zap out and say- Do you have one? Yeah, I do. And They're on amazing. weekends? Yeah, weekend phone. It's like screen-free weekends. Sorry, putting down my phone. I think- you know, that's a really important piece of the puzzle if you can do it. And it's your same phone number? Yeah, you just get a little SIM card and swap it over. I and swear I'm going to do this. Yeah, so Lightfall, I mean, in getting tools in your life to help support that, but I think it's also as simple as, and when it comes to actually adjusting the algorithm and the feed and whatnot, I always say too, like, make a new social media account for a whole different purpose that's literally not following any people you know just for inspiration. And go on that account if you want to actually redesign what your algorithm looks like and you just want to be looking at design and arts and experiences and like leave your old digital footprint behind. Create a new place for you to engage with that has nothing to do with work but still allows you to be in the social ecosystem for inspiration because it can be really powerful. And also Grayscale. Have you done that? Mm -mm. Are you kidding? No. What is that? Okay. Take out your phone. I'm going to show you right now. Oh my God. I'm so excited. Okay. Okay. So we're going to do a little experiment. So just I roll with me for a minute. Okay, so this is your colorful phone. Yes. Okay. This is really creepy. I'm really excited. Okay, so the way that phones, so when you're a baby, parents are always putting little like colors and things in front of their children. Uh-huh. So the way that phones are designed, every time your brain is getting a notification and sees a color, that's engaging and sending off different signals in your mind. When you take color completely out of your phone, see what happens when you go on Instagram, TikTok, etc. This is one of the best ways you can hack your phone because Instagram is boring. You take the color out of Instagram, you take the color out of TikTok, you take the color out of YouTube, it becomes a much less interesting place. And that's one of the most powerful tools that I use. And I always encourage families to actually do grayscale competitions. So who can stay on grayscale the longest? And you'll find it's much less interesting. Yeah, because I feel like I would only consciously (laughs) choose to go color when I'm creating. Yeah, exactly. So then you're just... so. This is... Insane. This yeah. is the tool I need. Yeah. This so go to settings and you can go to color filters and turn on gray. And color filters and settings are actually originally created as an accessibility setting 
But I like to use the color filters in black, white, and gray because it's one of the most effective ways that I find my brain literally is less interested in tech. I mean, you you turn everything black, white, and gray, it's completely different experience. So that's one of the best things you can do with this your This is the most valuable thing I have been taught in like months. Well, I'm not even here kidding. you go. And you can also Thank do you. the same on Thank your you. computer desktop as well. And the impact is profound. Like I find that I'm much more focused. I'm much more clear about where I'm directing my energy when picking up my device. Mm-hmm. And it's just like going into the analog world of black and white and newspapers. I'm about to get myself a flip phone and I'm in grayscale. Yeah. Moving forward. Flip phone. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to say this on this podcast because I can't be alone in this. I have not really been drinking a lot of alcohol. Yeah. And I, I had someone on the show yesterday and she also is, I don't know if you know her, Hillary Scheinbaum. She, yes. I met her when I was uh, working when I was a kin. Oh, really? Yeah. She's amazing. And okay. She- so she focuses on the sober curious movement, et cetera. And we were both talking about how when, and I don't say that I don't drink at all, but like I really rarely do now. And I've noticed that from like just letting go of the alcohol, my addiction has swayed into sugar and into social media, both of them. And I'm aware of them and I don't want to be participating in them, but it feels like they have more control of me than I have control of them. Mm. And I wonder if this is a part of the conversation of like removing a vice or removing something and then it having to kind of like move into a different direction because I never, I never felt addicted to sugar Mm -hmm. and I never was so aware of my addiction to social media. It might've been there, but I'm like, very clear on it now. And I'm curious if there's any science well, or any research I'm like, on this. We should uh, call in my best friend who's an addiction psychiatrist on that one. But first off, thank you for sharing that. I think that our world is waking up to the negative impacts of alcohol. And mm-hmm. when we were building Kin in 2018 now, which feels like a lifetime okay. ago, Jen really believed that that was going to be the future. And she was a futurist in that way. And alcohol is the one of the worst things you can do for your gut and your brain, period. And especially for high performers, people that are traveling all the time, it's literally drinking poison. It's one of the most, it really is the most dangerous drug. That's what many- You think more than social media? Alcohol? Alcohol or social media. I heard Simon Sinek say something really, I don't know if you saw him talk about mm-hmm. this, but that how we have regulations on, obviously like people can't drink until yeah. they're 21, but he's like, what people are doing right now with their children yeah. and phones is the same thing as if you opened your liquor cabinet for your five-year-old and said, go. Yeah. You have, you can go be in the liquor cabinet for the next five hours. Well, and that's why we're working on the public policy piece because yeah. there has not been a national legislation passed that supports, protects kids otherwise. And every single thing in this world Cars, toys, food, TV shows that we put in front of children have gone through numerous testing, a number of safety protocols, and have standards in place that are national. But social media is the one part of the world that has been completely, completely free in terms of what they can do. And it's destroying young minds. And the question that you're asking me is, you know, yes, alcohol, you look at a a brain with alcohol and without it, it's destructive. We are so early on to even understand the implications, not only of emotional health and technology, but also brain health, the cognitive functioning, memory, et cetera. There's been a number of recent articles about just how kids are actually, they're calling it adolescent dementia, where they're losing their short-term memory. And if I were to sit here in 30 years and be having a conversation with you, what I would imagine is that we would be talking about the rise in Alzheimer's and dementia amongst our generation. These platforms 
are fundamentally changing the way that our executive functioning is working in our minds for kids. When kids are getting on these devices, the decision-making center of their brain, the prefrontal cortex that is in charge of rationale, reasoning, executive functioning is not developed. So these platforms are preying on the limbic system, which is the emotional reward center of these young minds. Human and technology are becoming one. The average American teen spends eight hours a day on their device. That is 30 years of their life. If you spend 30 years of your life drinking or smoking, things wouldn't look good. And I can tell you right now that social media is going to have similar impacts. One of my questions for you is going to be, do you think that there's going to be addiction centers for social media addiction? It's funny you bring that up. So my best friend's an addiction psychiatrist, and through the work that we've been doing in education and research and public policy as an organization, that's actually something that's on the horizon in building centers and spaces to support the whole family and parent and kids, but through the lens of play and creativity, because there's a lot of fear and a lot of inpatient centers can be really destructive for kids because of the environments. And I personally believe that when you think about what the opportunity cost is of technology, it is play. And kids are not able to tap into the younger child. Their inner child is gone when they are children. There is nothing scarier to me. That's literally the literal backbone of this podcast is getting back to that. So to think that that is no longer on the table, because like we did experience that, like you just answered the question of what you were like as a kid, that scares me to no end. We don't have access to yeah. know who that was. And we talked to, I'm like, what do you do for fun on the weekends? The kids are like, I lay in bed and go on my phone. I was out painting, making dolls out of sticks. That scares and a lot of me. Yeah. And I, and I think people need to realize that this is, and when I have conversations with politicians and tech leaders, this is about something so much bigger than we can even see. We talk about the environmental crisis as a potential demise of our world. We are in a social media crisis, and the opportunity cost is humanity as we know it. Compassion, empathy, EQ, those are the things that are on the line. Okay, so I feel like at the bottom of this whole thing, at the end of the day, we're humans, right? So at the bottom of the whole entire thing is what we talked about originally, which was the need for validation and connection. Connection and validation are actually two sides of the same coin. So I think when you're being validated is because you're connecting with someone and they see you. So what are some tangible things that we can proactively do? And I'm not a parent yet, but I want to start thinking about this. Like, how can I empower my children to understand how to self-validate? I think that there's so much great conversation and education around how to self-soothe. But how to Mm self-validate is something that I feel like is not taught. And I'm really curious your take on on what that is, because it's at the bottom of the whole thing. Yeah. So the opposite of addiction is community and connection, period. And I'm really glad you brought this up because in when we look and study digital flourishing for middle schoolers and high schoolers, a big part of that is self-identity, both online and offline. And technology for some groups of young people, the LGBTQ plus community are actually benefiting in an incredible way through social media for many of those that are isolated in rural communities, and it can save their lives. And a lot of them have used it as a tool to support their identity. But for parents and kids, when it comes to identity and helping kids with their own self-esteem, which I believe is more important than any other thing that we're talking about today, it is so important 
to engage your kids. So first and foremost, engage your kids in analog activities that give them value and worth, whether that's drawing, playing chess, (laughs) learning a musical instrument, reading a book, and really validating and supporting that child to become a master of something that's off the internet. Because we are so quick in schools, I see, to send kids immediately online, be focused on coding, focusing on all these different things. But fundamentally, the arts, creativity, agility of physical activity is one of the best things you can do for your mind. And we need to ensure that we're nurturing that mastery so that kids have something that they're proud of outside of their own digital identity and device Mm -hmm. and also meeting. The second thing I would say is that parents need to remove fear. Most of the conversations like anything that's around fear, whether it's your kid getting pregnant or your kid drinking alcohol, when you embrace the abstinence mindset, there is a nine times out of 10 chance that your kid is going to do the exact opposite of what you want them to do. And you need to be able to create open and vulnerable spaces where you as a parent have to take the lead on how you are feeling. Your kid needs to know you're not a superhero. Your kid needs to know that you are a parent and you too, even as a mom, might feel less than because of the way that other moms use social media or left out. And to create that common denominator and space so that your kid knows you're a human so that they'll open up to you too. And I think that's one of the biggest things that parents get wrong is they just try to be these superheroes that are untouchable, which makes their kids afraid of letting them down instead of just building authentic relationships then the third thing is actually gamifying digital well-being. So make it fun. Instead of saying, we're taking your phones away this weekend, say, hey, you know what? We're going to do this competition as a family where we're going to leave our phones at home and we're going to go outside with old school cameras and do a scavenger hunt and see if we can do it. Let's see if we can leave our phones at home as a family for a weekend. Parents, you're the ones that are also taking out your phones and your kids are going to look at your behavior. So before pointing your fingers at your children, look at yourself. Make dinner a safe space. And the first person that takes out their phone is in charge of dishes for the week. You have to make stakes and actually reward kids for their behavior and make it something that the whole family is bought into. It can't just be about the kids following a rule. The parents have to abide by that too. And I think the last thing, the most important thing that you can do is just make space for play and fun. If your kid is really engaged in the present, they're not going to be thinking about their phone. Mm -hmm. And parents need to engage with their children. Our head of education said one of the saddest things is that when they go to the playground, her and her husband are the only parents on the ground with her daughter playing. The rest of the parents are up against the wall on their phones. Don't be that parent. Yeah, but that that is like the undercurrent in the back of our minds. It's like, I want to be, and I don't know, maybe this is just me, but it's like, I want to be the best version or I want yeah. to show up and like really know what I'm talking about in this field or whatever. And it's like, but what is the enough point? Back to that earlier thing. It's like, yeah. what is that enough point? I think that's a great question. And I think for me, one of the greatest things that I've experienced or that I try to hopefully make people feel is that, they are enough. And I want to make space for them to not be perfect and to have fun. Yeah. Because that's also where the most meaningful connections happen. Like when you're out dancing on a dance floor and you're like, oh my God. And then like the the person next to you changes your life. Why? Because you just had a lot of fun. I know I'm like harping on this question, but I think that proactive things are really, really helpful and useful tools. And I always think of like, if someone can take something from this and also like, I want to know for myself to self-validate actively or proactively how to do that. Yeah. Well, 
There's a couple things that you can do. So first it starts, I believe, by just validating your own emotions. And so one of the most challenging but actually impactful activities is to sit down and just spend a minute looking at a feelings wheel with every single emotion and identifying all of the emotions that you are feeling in a given moment. We are so quick to just say, I'm good, bad, anxious, depressed, but there's so many other emotions from elated to trapped to compassionate. And these types of emotions are important to identify with and to name. Because if you can name it, Naming it name it, name Brene. it to tame it, name it to tame it. What Have gets- you read her, her work? Atlas of the Heart, Brene Brown. I haven't read it yet. Oh my God. It's all about like language is the door to the soul. Yeah. And you have to name, and Megan on my team always says this, name it to tame it. And Jen used to always say, what gets revealed gets healed. And I think you have to start- That's a great takeaway. Yeah. Start by every morning when you wake up, checking in without your device and at the end of the day and writing down, I've never been someone that's like going to sit down and write three journal pages- write down, check in with your emotions, not just how am I feeling, but like really, how are you feeling? And there's actually a really good app called um, How We Feel that a friend of mine developed. And it's all about just being able to identify with your emotions throughout the day. And you can actually share your feelings with other people on your team or in your life, which I find is helpful because I also think in the digital world, because of the stories we tell the world, people check in a lot less. People don't just like call up nowadays and say, hey, how are you no, it doing? it gives me anxiety. How's your I heart? I see a phone number and I'm yeah. like, ugh. Someone's calling me, <laughs> you know? And like, I think it's as simple as that. So, but anyways, so naming, naming your emotions, really a critical thing to do. The second thing is also finding things that you, telling yourself three things you love about yourself every day. So like, how am I feeling? What do I love about myself? What do I love about myself if everything was taken away from me? My job, my money, my friends, my family, because those are all things that could happen. Like truthfully, if we're finding identity in just the shoes we're wearing or the jobs we have and the titles that we own, you know, that's not who we are. That's what we do. And I've started to, for me, in thinking about how I love myself, which has been a journey, it has nothing to do with me being a founder or this or that. Like I love myself because I can help other people tap into joyful moments, play, and let go of everything that makes them feel confined. And if I can do that for the barista or my best friend or a colleague and let people let go and just feel free, then for me, like that makes me happy. And I think we have to let go of our identity to physical and material things and really tap into who we are and also name that. And I think the third thing is ensuring that the type of content that you're letting into your life, you're really thoughtful about. Don't consume everything. Don't consume social media all the time. Create blocks. There's a great tool called the Freedom App, which is great for desktop because it can actually lock you out of certain platforms or even websites during your workday, which is super beneficial because between meetings, like it's really easy to say, I'm just going to go on LinkedIn or I'm going to do this. LinkedIn is like also... I heard you talking about that. Yeah, LinkedIn. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Check it out. Yeah, no, Freedom is a really, really valuable tool yeah. just because it's hard to block yourself out. And I also think it's harder to do it alone. So creating accountability with your team yeah. where you can actually talk about how hard it is is good. It's not easy. Nothing that's restrictive in life is easy. Yeah, it's you know all about being able to connect with your emotions, name them, and also love yourself for who you are and not what you do. Because we live in a world that loves to 
value others on followers, likes, what they do, CEO, XYZ, ABC, one, two, three. It's like inner child, girl. (laughs) I'm my inner child. I'm Lars. I'm eating, wearing a tie-dye shirt, wearing a flower crown and eating popsicles. And that's why I'm in a channel every single day. I love that. Like (laughs) truly so, so much. I am curious how you personally deal with, you are a founder still. It's nonprofit, but you are a founder and you are amplifying this incredibly important message and content. And it's on content platforms that were also, it's like, so it's so nuanced and it's like two sides. So how do you navigate that? And then also it's such a mission driven kind of project or not even project, like movement really, truly. Yeah. How do you know how big it is, but then also bring yourself back to Flower Crown, Lars? Wow. Oh, man. Okay. So there's two answers to that question. So I thought long and hard in the pandemic about what is my role in this digital world? Like, I was like, what the heck? I actually had like a moment where I was like, maybe I'll just quit all the devices. Like, I don't need these platforms. But I realized that my role in the world is to ask these hard questions and educate people and also make space for young people to participate in these conversations. So now what I do is usually once every few months, I sit in a room like this and do a bunch of thought leadership videos in one day, have someone else edit them, and I just pop them up and throw them out. So we can talk about what the future of education looks like with ChatGBT, whether or not the abstinence mentality works for technology, what teens are really doing when schools say that they ban TikTok and they're really just going on you know, VPNs and getting around it. So I know that I have a job as a leader of this movement and an activist to tell the right stories in the world. And so I've built the way that I engage with those platforms around it. And that's the intention purely. It's not to say really much more than that and also creative expression. So if it's creative and fun or I'm telling a story to the world around the work I'm doing, then that's great. I think this has been one of the most humbling journeys of my life. I mean, I started it when I was 20. I built it literally started with a $250 grant. And now I'm like in meetings, literally asking for singular human beings for $250 or $500,000. So it's like, there's that. And then going to the Capitol, testifying, meeting with people, you know, it's a really vulnerable position to be in at all times. And it's not easy. But there's something when you say like, you built this really the first nonprofit in this space. Like, yes, it's now we're international. There's kind of all this wild stuff happening. Like, how do I connect to that child? I think I know that this thing is not about me. It is about changing and making an impact in the world. And I don't have this like looming thing over my head of, oh, I have to sell this company because it's a nonprofit. Like my job is to make the most amount of impact possible through integrity and do the research so that we can change the story of the future, period. And every day I have to embrace that servant mentality because that is what my job is. Like I am in service to the world, to my team, to the next generation. And anything that's not aligned with that is not in my life. And so for me, I just embrace that this is a, a service mentality. And I think that's why I don't feel like caught up or feeling like, I think sometimes when people experience growth, sometimes they feel better than other people. Sometimes they feel disconnected from other people. I feel so lucky because I do experience so much connection and love in my life. I have an amazing partner. I have amazing friends. And that's what keeps me on the ground. 
I also spend half of my life literally living on like an art farm in Northern California where no one can talk to me. I like make art, literally like marble, was doing Japanese marbling paper last week and disconnect from everything. And I go into my cocoon and I do that for like a couple of weeks a month and then I'm on the road. That's a big part of it too. And I spend, I have intergenerational friendships. One of my best friends is 90 years old. My fashionista. best friend's 95 because she's my grandmother. <laughs> Yeah, like she's truly like yeah, the inspiration. Having intergenerational friendships is one of the most the best things you can do for your mental health, but I don't know, I just it's like a it's a gift. I fought for so many years for this. Blood, sweat, tears, money, like everything. And now I feel like the world is ready and that I have to step in and step up in this moment to make the impact that I always hoped of doing from You're the inner it. child of trying to come up with ways to solve cancer with lemon juice, you know? So same it's like, girl. I'm the same, same girl, girl, different stage, different place. And same girl. It's really, it's, I mean, it's such a powerful story. I feel like you're just scratching the surface. And even within this era, you've just made such impact. And what you're doing is so important. I always ask every guest, what is something that you know with full certainty that you wish everyone know? That connection is the opposite of addiction. Excellent answer. What is something that you've had to unlearn and then relearn in a way that's resourceful? I've had to unlearn that pain equals progress. As a young person from the time that I was 13 years old, I thought that I like honestly had to kill myself in order to see growth and in order to get to where I wanted to be, which led to social, emotional, <laughs> psychological, and physical implications. And now what I've realized is that you don't have to put yourself through hell to get to where you want to be necessarily every day. You need to take risks and you need to work hard. But most importantly, you need to protect the vessel, the tent that is on the planet right now doing this work. And we have to protect our spirit so that we can show up in service and in love for others. Thank you so much. I can't wait to see what you do next. Is there anything that right now our listeners can go do to support? Yeah. Or are there any events happening that we can show up yeah, at? Yeah, so we're, um, there's a couple of things. So first and foremost, if you want to learn about, you can connect with me at Living Like Lars or go to halfthestoryproject.org. We have a couple of opportunities. So one is for anyone that wants to bring our educational programming into their schools or kids' schools, you can reach out to us. Uh, if you have young kids and that want to come tell their stories and come advocate with us at Congress, that's also on the table. So reach out to us. But lastly, you know, we're a nonprofit. So if anyone that's listening is part of a corporation or a foundation or even just personally wants to support, advocates that support us are the reason that we're doing this. It takes a village. It's not me. It's the millions of people that have believed that this is important and that inspire and put their fire and hard-earned dollars and dreams behind this mission. And so every person has a space at our table and everyone has the power to do one small thing every day to change the world. I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome back whenever. And keep it going. Thank you. Keep fucking going because you're crushing. Like oh, truly. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for getting to the end of the episode. And more importantly, thank yourself for choosing to learn more about how to come home to yourself. As always, take what resonates with you and simply let go of what doesn't. 
I would really appreciate it if you can give the show five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen, because that's the way that the show will continue to grow. And we are all about growth here. I'm sending you so much love and I will see you next week.